Sometimes we're tempted when things go as they went last Lord's Day evening to be discouraged and to panic and to wonder why the Lord would allow such a thing. But at, during the same week, later in the week, we received a telephone call from a pastor from Missouri who, returning to Missouri from Cincinnati, Ohio, in the middle of Indiana, heard the broadcast and had never heard such preaching. And is now going to be on the mailing list and we're going to send him a packet of material at his request and was thrilled to hear preaching from the Word of God. I had no idea and doesn't yet know that that was only half a sermon uh, edited down. He thinks that's better than anything he's ever heard and he has some influence apparently in the Baptist Bible Fellowship which is centered in Missouri. So uh, another uh, reason for us to rejoice and continue to pray. Uh, the thing uh, reached uh, Indiana uh, at, on Sunday night, and he said, uh, "Brother Allen, he said I didn't, I couldn't stop and take notes, so I got to get that tape, and I'd like to know if they have any others uh, that I could hear." And I said, "I think we have, we can accommodate you." And so we rejoice in that, and I think it'll help you as you pray, so that you won't let the tentacles of discouragement and frustration affect your boldness and your delight in praying. We are uh, working with the radio station in rectifying the problem, and we've been assured that they'll do their utmost. To see to it that this doesn't happen again. Uh, it is a privilege, is it not, to be in the midst of a world uh, that so desperately needs these things, and the very need itself drives us on in the face of all the difficulties and the glitches. Well, if you will, please turn with me in your Bibles again to John chapter 17. John 17. As we continue our studies in the Gospel of John, and particularly during this time in this high priestly prayer of our Lord Jesus Christ. Read with me, please, as I read in your hearing John 17, verses 1 through 3. These things spake Jesus, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he should give eternal life. And this is life eternal that they should know you, the only true God, and him whom you did send, even Jesus Christ. Again, please join me as we bow our heads and our hearts together in prayer. 
Our Father, we would beg of you now that you would overcome the weakness of human flesh, and through him in whose hands you have placed all authority over all flesh, do a work in our midst upon our hearts, not withholding your Holy Spirit from us, but as satisfying fruit and reward to your Son's labors, Give the Spirit to us in great measure. O Lord, help the preacher that he might be faithful to you and to the truth without being afraid of men. Give liberty and unction of speech and heart and help the hearer that he and she may hear for eternal purposes and unto eternal fruit. O God, give unto us that which we in a million years could never make to happen in our own wisdom or strength. Come and astound us, even as you did this morning, in your mercies to us. Come and speak to us. Visit us, O Lord, unto our good and to your glory. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We have seen in our consideration of this passage and this prayer that the ultimate goal of our Lord Jesus Christ's life here on the earth was to glorify his Father. And we've seen that the central means of achieving that glory was to be himself glorified. And we further have observed that the path to that glory his own glory and thereby the glory of his Father was the path of suffering, the suffering of the cross. And now we consider that the particular place or the particular locus at which that glory is seen is in his giving eternal life to his people. It is in the giving of eternal life that we see the direct object of our Savior's suffering. His great goal was his Father's glory. The means to that glory was his own glory. The path to achieving his own glory was the path of suffering. But the particular terminus upon which the glorifying of the Son of God would focus itself would be that it from a multitude of undeserving, ungodly rebels like us, he should give and draw out eternal life. That to us, he would give that which we in all of our existence could never obtain by our own doing or our own strength. Nothing less than life himself. Life itself. Now note that Christ in this passage is given authority over all flesh. As some have said, power over that most stubborn thing in all the world, flesh. And in that power that God has given his Son over all flesh, his Son is able from among flesh and to flesh to give eternal life. Now what I want to do tonight is very simply to examine this topic eternal life, the object of Christ's suffering, from three headings. First, to make an attempt to define 
eternal life biblically. A definition of eternal life. To see something of its essence, its quality, and its present reality. Then in the second place, to lead you to think about the recipient of eternal life. Who has it? To whom is it given? How can we tell if we have eternal life dwelling within us? If we are truly alive unto God, the recipient of eternal life. And in the third place, the full revelation of eternal life. The full or the consummate revelation of eternal life. First of all then, consider with me the definition of eternal life. And we'll look at it without being really precise in the, dirt, uh, in the working out of these three elements. We'll look at it from these three elements. Its essence, its quality, and its present reality. As to the essence of eternal life, let me say that there's not a more critical question in all of our lives than the question as to whether we live, as to whether we exist more than just in this world and in the flesh. The most fundamental and crucial issue of all is eternal life. The problem is that men who strive in this world for life, who strive to preserve it, to enjoy it, to hold on to it tenaciously, are striving for that which is not satisfying. They in this society are utterly preoccupied with the fear of death. We are a culture scared to death to die. We are afraid to get near death and we color it and obscure it and paint it and hide from it and hide it from ourselves. No doubt we ought to be afraid to die in the condition in which we find our souls in our generation. They know the ordinance of God that they that practice the things which they practice deserve death. But they not only continue to practice those things, but against their consciences take pleasure in those that do practice them. So in the secret places of their hearts, in that conscience that has been bludgeoned and seared with a hot iron, they know that God is waiting to destroy them. They know in their deepest heart they know God, but they do not wish to know God. And though they have covered their consciences with his knowledge and run from him and hidden from their consciousness his existence, down deep there's still the knowledge that they're wrong and they're living wrong. And so they dread the day of their death and their confrontation with him who has the power over death, the keys of death and hell. And so they frantically run to all sorts of measures to elongate their existence on this planet. Some of the most miserable and unhappy people in history live in America today and are dreaded the day of their death. They want to cling to that which is making them miserable. They cannot think or bear the thought of leaving this world. All that they live for is the flesh and its pleasures, the lusts 
of the flesh, the lusts of the eyes, the pride of this world, this life. And every bit of their pleasure is derived from this earthly life of dust. And they clutch it like that proverbial monkey with his arm inside the jar and his fist around that little piece of fruit. And not willing to unleash his, the fruit from his fist, he couldn't get his fist out of the jar to eat it. They live looking and clutching for life, and in the process, they never are able to partake of its fruits unto satisfaction. I'm convinced that one of the secrets behind the modern medical revolution is the fear of death. I'm not suggesting for a moment that it is the duty of the Christian church to hasten our physical death that violates the sixth commandment. It is our duty to do all that we can legitimately to preserve life. But we need to come to the place that we can accept the day of our death. That we can accept the day of our loved one's death. That we can let people die because we're not ultimately afraid of that thing which leaves this world and ushers us into the world to come. It's not surprising, is it, that men who have no hope beyond the grave of life with God and peace with God should be dreading the day of the leaving of the flesh. Sinners, you see, in this world are dead in trespasses and sins. Man has a serious, a critical problem. He is dead. He is born, as it were, dead. Dead to God. Dead to righteousness. Dead to ultimate hope. They are children of wrath, which all of us were before our regeneration. God is against the sons of Adam for their sins. They are enemies of God. They are aliens to God. They are strangers to God. Turn with me, if you will, to John chapter 8, verse 19. He's speaking, the Lord is speaking to the leaders of the Jews, called more than once by John simply the Jews. He's speaking to those whom, as we heard this morning, he had already exposed for what they were. Charlatans, hypocrites, the religious system of the day, the apostate movement. And in verse 19 of John 8, he responds to them, when they said to him, Where is your father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. He recognized that the fact that they did not recognize him meant that they did not recognize his father. The reason they did not know his father was because they were not of God. They were, by this simple definition, strangers to God. They didn't know God. They didn't know God, and it was revealed and made plain that they didn't know God by the fact that they did not understand who his son was. They did not see him for what he was, nor receive him as God's son. And he said, if you knew me, you would know my father. 
The reason you don't know my Father is because you don't know me. You don't see who I am, and that proves that you don't know my Father. They're strangers to God. And that brings us to consider, in the first part of the definition, the essence of eternal life. What is the essence of eternal life? And in our text, in John 17, verse 3, we are told by the Lord what it is. Verse 3 of John 17, this is life eternal. This is it. He doesn't say this is how to get it or this is the way to it. This is it in its essence that they should know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. It is eternal life merely to know God. That's what it is. In its simple essence, to know God. Now, the lack of this knowledge of God is rooted in our soul. And it explains the senseless, bestial, confused, foolish, misplaced, and purposeless existence of men and women and young people all around us. Oh, dear brethren, many of you tonight in this place who have eternal life and know Christ, you have grown dim to your appreciation of it. You've forgotten the significance of what you are and what you know and what you understand and what you perceive. You are so used to it that you've forgotten what a contrast there is between you and those that don't have it. You know God, and there are therefore things in the Bible that are dear to you to whom, to, to which this world is utterly blind. There are things that happen in the prayer meeting on Wednesday night here that can never happen in the hearts of most of the people that you know outside this place. You know God, and it dictates all sorts of things that you do and feel and think and say in your life. And you grow accustomed to that, and you forget by thinking of your sins and your weaknesses and your failures, you forget how significant it is that in your heart dwells the living God and his life throbbing in your spiritual veins. You lose sight of what a thing it is to be without the knowledge of God. Dear brethren, can you imagine yourself living in the stupor of frequent, uh, of frequent trips to the cabinet for the bottle and being unable to say no to that idol which your body comes to crave? Can you imagine being a fifth grader, a nine or ten-year-old drug addict? And there are those in our society. Can you imagine living your life for the next piece of creative pornography? And you cannot get your mind off the pictures you saw last week and the ones you plan to view this week? Could you imagine being lost in worship of any of those sordid things in this world, and yet you are surrounded by multitudes who live for nothing more than their next sexual experience or their next high or low, depending on the nature of the drug they pump either into their gullet or into their veins. Can you imagine resorting to such a thing? Not if you have eternal life. You know the reason those things seem unseemly to you? 
and you'd never consider seriously pursuing them because you're alive to God. And it's only logical that those who know not God do not see this behavior as aberrant. We should not be surprised or think it strange that the leaders of our generation do not think those behaviors things to be punished. They think of these people who by their own behavior bring death upon their own bodies and threaten their entire culture with disease as being victims because they in themselves do not know God. It explains this bestial existence that so many around us live. But you know what we mean when we say know God. To know thee, the only true God, is more than head knowledge. We're not speaking of people who know that there is a God. The devil knows that there is a God. And the knowledge of the devils who know that there is a God makes them to tremble. And that trembling is not the holy trembling of sanctified souls. It's the trembling of the dread of that day when they know the Son of God is going to call them to account. They are restrained and reserved in chains of darkness, waiting for the ultimate day in which the Son of Man will come with the power of the holy angels and will cast them into the lake of fire. And they tremble at their knowledge of God. And we're not speaking of knowing that there's a God or even of knowing which God is the real one. The text says clearly that they may know thee. Not know about thee, but know thee. In John's Gospel, this word for knowledge is used about 55 times. And in every case, as far as I can tell, without exception, it is used in the verb form and not as a noun. It is an active verb. It means to know. It's a matter of living experience. It's not to have located in the brain some facts with which you agree. It is to have personal, intimate knowledge of God. You're aware that in the Bible frequently, especially in the Old Testament, this concept of know or to know is explaining the intimate relations between a man and a woman in the marital bed. He knew his wife and she conceived and had a child. This knowledge is intimate communion. It's described in physical terms as that most intimate communion expressed through marriage. But in the scriptures to know God, described in spiritual terms, the same quality, intimate, personal communion with God. An intimate and personal communion characterized by love and appreciation. Now let me explain a minute. What we mean by intimate, personal communion with God, characterized by love and appreciation. And I think I can help you see it by directing your attention to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. And if you ever want to do a good study of how to know you have eternal life, 1 John is the book to read. It's a book on which to meditate. It's a book of assurance for those who have it. It's a book of devastation for those who do not. It is designed to reveal to you 
where you stand. Well, in 1 John chapter 4, verse 7, beginning with an exhortation, we read these words, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loves is begotten of God and knows God. He that loves not knows not God, for God is love. Now, among other things, what is he doing in this passage? He is connecting the knowledge of God to the heartfelt love between one man and his brother. He is saying that if you you know God, it will be manifested in your affectionate love for people in the image of God, especially the people of God, God's children, loving one another. If you do not love those that are made after the image of Christ by regenerating and adopting grace, you do not know God, because the knowledge of God transforms the heart. The connection here is not... You know that there is a God, therefore you ought to try to find a way to love. The connection is, if you know God, you love. You love God, and you love his people. It is inevitable. It is not something that's an option. It's not something that sometimes appears. It is there in the heart, to some degree, of every person who savingly knows God. We mean, by eternal life, in its essence, To know God. To know Him in intimate, personal communion. A communion that is characterized by love and appreciation. In 1 John chapter 5, you remember that verse in verse 3 that says, Herein is the love of God. That we keep His commandments. And His commandments do not grieve us. I want you to think a minute about what it means to know God. And what it means to know God is at least this. It means that in your heart dwells the love of God. You love God, and you love God's people. But how do you know whether you love God or love his people? How do you know if it's sincere love? How do you know if you have the knowledge of God? How do you know if you have eternal life? Because... If you know God in the way Christ is speaking when he says, This is eternal life that they should know thee. If you know God in the saving way that the Bible speaks, then the commandments of God will not be to you a resentment, a dread, or a bother. They'll not be too heavy. They'll not be irritants. They'll not be things you'd like to change or adjust a bit to conform to your preferences, they will be things that are not grievous, but things that not only you do, but that you love to do, delight to do, and welcome the privilege of doing. You love the law of God. Now I've taken you quickly from the idea of knowledge of God to the idea of loving the law of God. And I did it on purpose, because that's what the Bible does. And I did it because I don't want you to spend any time wasting your mind tonight thinking that you may know God if there is an aspect of his law revealed in the Bible that you don't love. 
If you have a controversy with some aspect of the law of God, then it's questionable as to whether you know God. You see, you may know he's God, and you may know it's his law, and you may be afraid to face it, and your conscience may be pursuing you, and you may be trying, externally at least, to meet some minimum standards, or the standards of the church. As we heard this morning, you may be ministering to the church, and not to God. You may be coming for our benefit and not for God's benefit. And that's most clearly seen in how consistent you are in the closet when no one's watching you. How do you really function when you know that nobody but God is watching and you'll not get caught? Is it drastically and consistently different from the way you conduct yourself when we're watching? It's a way of checking the truth of your claims to know God. His commandments are not grievous. They are delightful. We esteem all his law, all his commandments, all his precepts concerning all things to be right. The greatest grief of the Christian is that he so little conforms to obedience to the law of God. Not that there's a law to which he must conform, Not that it keeps hounding him, not that it keeps bothering him, but that he wishes he could live up to it, and he can't. And it grieves him, and he strives to obey it because he loves that law. He sees it as good and holy and perfect, and he delights in it. And he wishes he were more like what that law pictures and reflects, but he's not. And so he grieves. He doesn't grieve because of the law. He grieves because of his sin, his transgression of the law. He doesn't grieve because there's a rule that restricts him on the Lord's day where he has to stop and think, would this be to the honor and the glory of the Lord for whose sake this day has been given to me? He doesn't, it doesn't bother him that he has to awaken in the morning and find time alone with God. It bothers him that he so little wants to. But it doesn't bother him that he ought. It doesn't bother him that he's privileged to. He longs to cultivate in his soul a sweeter, holier, fuller walk with his God. It doesn't bother him when God sends a preacher to him to to probe and to dig out a piece of conscience that he could have avoided if that preacher had been a little quieter or a little less insistent. He welcomes it as some of God's spirit's spade work to answer his deepest prayer to conform him to the image of Christ, to know God with affection and love and appreciation is not mere sentimental attachment to know some figment of an imagination. That's why idols are so devastating, because they replace the true God with a picture or an icon or a representation of God designed to appeal to our preferences and our senses and our likes. They avoid the God who is God before our likes and preferences ever existed, and they conform him to our likes and preferences, and thereby damn us if we follow them and believe them. An idol kills because it misrepresents the true God. We're not to love him because he's particularly appealing to our flesh. We're not to love him because there's some sentimental attachment to him. We're to love him as he's revealed in the Bible. The holy God 
of all creation. We're not to love him as long as we can fit him into our box. We're to love him regardless of what package we see him in, as long as it's the way is revealed. We love him as he is, or we don't love him at all. Loving God and knowing God is not merely some powerful emotion. There are many people that are deceived and deluded in our day because they have felt so close to God. And if you've been where I've been, and you've heard some of the testimonies of some of the people in this generation, you know that there are people that are convinced that they found the truth because of an experience they've had. And you cannot get through their thick skull because they feel what they feel. They have experienced what they've experienced. And their testimony may be 180 degrees opposite of what the Bible teaches. And yet because of what they felt when they met, whatever it was they met, they are convinced it has to be God. I have talked to people on drugs, convinced they met God during their trip. And you could not argue it. And have you ever had that experience? I've had that experience of a man who has vowed that on drugs he got closer to God and you cannot argue it because of the great feelings that he had. What about these people that had these death experiences, these whatever they call them, and they came back and they speak of this wonderful thing they saw and these great smells and these great hymns and these great feelings, but they cannot testify to the saving work of Christ. They have no knowledge of the gospel and yet they vow that they know they're going to heaven because when they had this temporary death experience, they walked on grass unlike any grass in this world. They smelled fragrances unlike any fragrance and it made them unafraid of death, I tell you. Unless they're in Christ, they ought to be afraid of death. The angel appears, the devil appears as an angel of light and he grants tremendous feelings in order to steer us away from the true God. Some of you have been led astray and beguiled by the devil tempting you to believe that unless you feel a certain way, your devotionals are void. And you have the habit that unless in the first couple of minutes you start feeling the chill bumps, that you just figure that it's useless and you pan out and fade out. But you see, you don't read the Bible for a feeling, nor do you read it because you have a feeling. You read it because it's God's revealed truth and it's true and you want to learn it and act on it. And it's not that complicated to do. It needs grace to do it, but it doesn't need a funny feeling in the spine. And you need to learn to live by faith in what God says when you feel nothing. You don't want to think that knowing God is some powerful emotion. Neither is it agreement with general statements of your religious party or group. You may agree with your confession of faith and not know God. You may agree with the great statements of your preachers but not know God. You may agree with all the great statements of Christian life in history but not know God. Knowing God is personal. It's direct. It's intimate. I know about the President of the United States, but I do not know the President of the United States. I know who he is. I believe that he is the President. And if you ask, do you believe in the President? Well, I would, I'd have to answer in several different ways. 
But if, I, if you mean, do you believe that he is the president, that he has the right to be the president, and that you ought to do what the president leads you to do, as long as it's not violating the word of God, I'd say yes. But if you ask, do you know the president, I'd have to say, no, I've never met him. I don't know him. It's something like that with God. It's not enough, children, that your parents know God and you have heard about God from your mommy and daddy. That's important. And it's vital that your mom and daddy tell you about God. But you see, you have to know God yourself. You have to come to know him personally. You know what it's like. A lot of you children know Pastor Allen. And when you come to the foyer, you know that you can get a hug from me and I can get one from you. And I, I want a hug from you and you, some of you want a hug from me. And you know that that makes us friends and that you know me. But you know your mommy and daddy a lot better than you know me, don't you? It's not the same at all, is it? Pastor Allen is not daddy. And there's a special sense in which you can sit on daddy's lap, or I hope that you can, and feel intimately affectionate toward daddy. There's not but one daddy. And you love daddy and you love mommy in a special way. And if we say, do you know Pastor Allen the same way you know daddy? You'd say, no, no, I know daddy's special. It's personal. He's my daddy. I'm his daughter. I'm his son. And that's something of what we mean when we speak of knowing God. You must come to the place, if you are to go to heaven and be saved from your sins, in which you know God's special, which God is your daddy, your father, on whose lap you feel comfortable sitting, in whose presence you delight. And you children, if you're thinking, Pastor Allen, I think I understand what you said. I don't comprehend it. I don't think I, I fully understand how to know God, but I think you're right. I know that what I see in my mom and dad is that they walk with God. They know God. It's, when daddy leads the devotionals, it's more, it's obvious that daddy knows the God he's talking about. It's not just words. My daddy's not just leading devotionals because the pastor's told him to. He, he really knows God. Now, he has his ups and downs, but my daddy walks with God. I stumbled into his private time, and I've seen him on his knees praying. I've heard my mother praying when she didn't know I was listening. I've heard them talking about the things of God together in the bedroom when they thought I was asleep. They know God. I don't know God that way, but I'd like to know God that way. Well, that's what you must pray. And ask God, who is very gracious and faithful to those that ask, that he would make himself known to you in that personal way. That he'd be your special God, your special friend. Because unless you know God that way, you do not have eternal life. This is eternal life. That they know thee, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you sent. This knowledge of God is principled, unreserved, Commitment to God, to his law, to his son's exclusive saving rights and power. Principled, unreserved commitment to God. Commitment to God's law, all of it. And commitment to his son and his exclusive saving rights and power. You see, the text says, to know thee, 
the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. It means that when you know him, that the one you know has become the controlling principle of the whole of your life. To know God means that God is the controlling principle of the whole of your life. He is the reason that you get up at the hour in which you arise in the morning. Because your conscience tells you that there are things in God's kingdom that must be addressed and slacking out and sleeping in is not going to get them addressed. He's the one for whom you give a whole day, the first day of every week, and build the whole day around his worship. Even so that some of your relatives, when they come to see you, get very uncomfortable as the Lord's day approaches and begin to find immense excuses as to why they may not be able to make it to church with you. And you must so steel yourself against that temptation that you don't budge an ounce or an inch. You have your eyes set like a flint on the whole day for Christ's sake because you know God. He's the controlling principle in the whole of your life. When you think that others are fudging a bit on their tax reports, you cannot because God, the controlling thing in your life, will not allow it. When you could get by with it and others do, you don't try. When you don't work a full day's work and come to payday, the controlling principle in your life bothers your conscience. And the next week, after you've confessed your sin and found forgiveness, you work a free little bit of overtime to make up for it and refuse to be paid for it. It got quiet. You know why it got quiet? Because we don't work all these things out in thinking through what these things mean when we say, I know God, who has become the controlling influence in all of my life. It's when you turn off the television against the protest of the children whom you have trained to love it simply because it's time to direct their attention to holy things. Because the one you know has become the controlling factor in all of your life. It's when others in the church do things with a clear conscience, but for you at this time to do that otherwise legitimate thing. For you to do it would be not proper. Now, in this situation, you simply do not and you graciously decline because you're walking to the beat of another drummer. Not that they're doing anything wrong and you can't judge them because it's legitimate, but in this case it would take you away from a higher thing. And because you walk in the knowledge of God, you're able to make decisions that other men are puzzled about. Now, if saints are puzzled at some of your decisions, how much more are those that work with you on the job who know not God and go to school with you and know not God and live in your neighborhood and know not God? And dear brethren, let's face it. The day that you get this settled in every area and begin to act on it with consistent principle, they will begin to talk about you. 
you will be persecuted. It'll start with slander and the little words will trickle back to you through the little bird that carries them. And finally it'll come to frontal thoughts, ridicule, questioning your wisdom, asking what kind of cult you've joined, all sorts of things designed to undermine your own conscience before God. But because you know God, they always fail in their efforts to undermine. I would submit to you that some people in the world may know more data about God than some of his children know, but they do not know the intimacy of familial affection with God. That's why an eight-year-old can know God without having learned the catechism. That's why a 14-year-old can know God, whereas a Ph.D. in the seminary may not. Because you can know all kinds of things about him that are true, that are biblical, and not know him. But when he becomes the controlling principle of the whole of your life, then you can say no. But notice he also says another thing, that they may not and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. That double statement is full of theology. And I've had to restrain myself from uh, de developing an entire series on the subject of the deity of Christ. Because you notice that it's not merely the God up there to whom he's addressing his prayer that we must know. It is God up there to whom he's addressing his prayer and Jesus Christ whom he sent. It's not even stated God through Christ, but it's God and Christ. Now, obviously, to know a mere creature can never be defined as eternal life. But we must know Jesus Christ to have life. Equally to knowing the Father. The very statement alone strongly supports the doctrine of the deity of Christ. But what he's saying is, without our delving further into that wonderful subject, is that you must know God as God unique. The only true God. The only one who really has a right to be called God. Not just any God. Brethren, we are living in a Western apostate society which can use the word God and pass by it and not have anybody angry with them or upset with them or confused because we have amalgamated the term God as though it is the Christian name for God when most who today publicly use it have no intention of including in that God his Son, Jesus Christ, whom he sent. But you cannot claim, nor do you have eternal life, if you know God, but do not know Jesus Christ whom he sent. You do not know God. There's only one true God, and people must know him in order to have eternal life. It is in the knowing him that we live. You don't have the option. As one close to me one time said, I believe in a God, so I think I'll go to heaven. Whose heaven, I ask? What heaven? 
Where did you get the study and the doctrine of heaven? Who told you there was a heaven to which? Well, the Bible tells about it. But what God is in the Bible by which you get to heaven? Not a God. The only true God whom to know is by definition to cut out every other God that anyone could believe in. Dear brethren, quit kidding yourself in thinking that somehow you can testify biblically to knowing the true God and have this world welcome your testimony. If you presented your testimony in such a way that they don't know that you have radically cut them off from eternal life by what you said, then you haven't presented it biblically. I didn't say that you're supposed to go say to them the first time you meet them on the elevator, you don't have eternal life. I didn't say you ought to teach your children to go around the neighborhood telling all their friends, your family doesn't worship the true God. They'll do that because they'll hear your, your teaching in the scripture and you'll have to go uh, mop up a lot of zeal. No, they will. And sometimes maybe they ought to. And I'm not as ready to rebuke, rebuke them as some of us may be. But I tell you, what I am saying is that you cannot know the only true God. And, and get by with calling him anything less than all that the Bible calls him. Don't you understand it? We don't worship the same God that the modernist worships. The modernist worships the deistical rational God. The God who's easy to comprehend, logically figured out. The God who's revealed some of his will in the Bible. And they are smart enough to know which is true and which is not. And so they've got their own Bible within a Bible. And they look down their noses on us ignorant ones that think the whole thing is true because we don't want to go to the intelligence that they've gone to to figure out what's not true. They've even twisted the language to pretend they do believe the whole thing. Well, we accept it as authoritative. This is not all true. I could show you literature from leading evangelicals who've made those statements. We submit to the authority of the Bible. I don't know what I'd be without my Bible, one said. But to claim it's inerrant and infallible is a claim the Bible never makes for itself. I've heard that. I've read that. And the simple question of the little saint is, if it ain't true and if it's fallible and if it's got errors, how can we have confidence in its authority? You know what your children do when they begin to observe your inconsistency and you command them to do something that they've been observing that you're unwilling to do. You know what they start saying, don't you? you ever heard, any, any of you fathers ever run into that? But, Daddy, yesterday you watched that on the tube. No, but that's not for children. Why not, Daddy? Because it's got nasty stuff in it. And they've been going to Sunday school. And their Sunday school teachers have been teaching them what you've been praying they would teach them. And they've been telling them that Christians aren't supposed to watch nasty stuff. And down in their little consciences, something's confusing to them. But you know what's happening? Their affections are so strongly tied to you that secretly they're going to hold them back from Christ because they'd rather keep Daddy than to reject Daddy and know Christ. God is one. And you must know him as the only true God. But how do we know who he is? Who is the only true God? That's the second half of the statement. And Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. 
That's why the Apostle Paul often calls him the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Particular, specific designation of exactly whom it is we're speaking of, so there'll be no mistake about it. He is the God who set Christ. He is the God that loves the world. He is the God who saved the world by His Son. He is the God against whom they've all sinned. He is the God who gives His law and who has a right to demand that every creature obey it. He is God. He's the God who only can, who alone can save. You must know God, the only true God. And who is He? He's the God of Jesus Christ, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You must know God as He is known in Christ. You must know Jesus Christ as God and as the unique Son of the one true God. We don't need to multiply text to support that assertion. In other words, we must see both these together. You may never have one without the other. You cannot know Jesus Christ without thereby knowing God. Don't say that you know Jesus, but don't understand Him to be God. And do not believe He's the only way to glory into heaven. You don't know Jesus if that's the Jesus you know. Don't say you know Jesus, but he has no law for you to obey. Don't say you know Jesus, but he's going to ignore your violations of his holy law. And he doesn't care how you act as long as you got your ticket at one time in your decision. Don't say that to your soul. Satan is lying to your soul. He is God. He is the unique Son of the one true God. And you cannot know Him without knowing God. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Neither can you know God without knowing Jesus Christ. You see, if we could say it, this text strikes at two great errors. The Gentiles, who did not know Him as the only true God, but had their pantheon of idols. And the Jews, who thought they knew the one God, and their Shema declared the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt worship the Lord thy God with all thy heart and soul and mind and strength. But they did not know the true God, and Jesus told them they didn't know him when he said, if you knew me, you would know the Father. But you don't know me, you're my Father. He's the only true God for the Gentile, and he's the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ to the Jew. And it's that that made the Jew have a stumbling block. And it's the only true God that caused the Greek to fall in his wisdom. You cannot pick your gods. There's one true God. And if you think you know the one true God, make it sure that it is through his Son, and in his Son, and that he is the God who sent his Son that you know. It narrows down the field a bit, dear brethren, and you must be ready for that field to be narrowed. The Christian religion is by definition an absolutely exclusive religion. We've spoken of that doctrine in recent days and will not continue, but get it settled that if you stand in this culture with the one true God of your Bible, And if you know Jesus Christ and are pleased to let it be known that that is your way to God and everyone's way to God, and if you say it the way the Bible says it, you will make some enemies. It is not your desire to make enemies. You will not have to make an attempt to make enemies. 
you make it clear that there's one way to God. And if you have any courage at all, you will make that clear. And you will have enemies. What would you rather have? Pleasant path among the people of this world with a question in your conscience as to whether you've been true to your confession? Or a clear conscience before God that you know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent, apart from both of which you cannot have eternal life? What are you willing to sacrifice for peace among men? We may summarize our definition of the essence and quality of eternal life by simply saying that it is life belonging to eternity. It's invisible. We can't look at each other and see whether we have eternal life. Maybe that's part of our problem. We want to see what it looks like and you can't see it in the flesh. It's invisible to our eyes. We don't know Christ after the flesh any longer. We don't read after the flesh. But even though it's invisible, it is nonetheless real. Eternal life is real life. Remember what the Lord Jesus said, and it's important to hear this. He said, The thief cometh not but to kill and to steal and to destroy. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. Now, if you're not up to this, up on this, let me tell you that there are those in recent church history, of the last couple of hundred years especially, who have written things and preached a doctrine that some call the deeper life or the higher life or the victorious life, in which they have said that John 10.10, from which that text is quoted, is speaking of two kinds of life for Christians. There are the, all the Christians who have life, eternal life, but there are some who have, abund- who have abundant life. If you're saved, you have eternal life. Now, you may live like the devil, but you'll go to heaven. If you made your decision, once saved, always saved, uh, you'll go to heaven. But Jesus wants more than that for you. He doesn't want you just to have old, ordinary, boring, eternal life. He wants you to have abundant life. And that preaching has been done. But that's not what he's telling us. He's not telling us that all Christians have eternal life, but there's a better life even than that. There's abundant life. That these dead and carnal and greedy and selfish and gossipy and slanderous and rebellious and picky fighters among the churches, they have eternal life because we were there when they got baptized. They're sincere. We know they made their decisions. They were very emotional the day they made their decision and prayed the prayer. The preacher was there and he understands that they really were saved. He doesn't understand why they don't come to church much or when they come they pick and choose the services of the preachers they prefer to hear. And when they do come, they're hardly with it and you have to almost, it's like pulling wisdom tooth to get them even to lighten up and open their eyes and act as though they can't wait to hear the word of God. But they have eternal life. But you see, that's not really worth having. It's sort of nice because ultimately you get to go to heaven and, and have pleasure there, but you want abundant life. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's speaking of the same thing. He's saying, I've come that they might have life, but in case you think by that that I mean the kind of life that you're chasing in this world, that's not what I mean. I'm not come that you may have a longer existence on this planet. (coughs) Short life here is much better if it's the quality of Christ's life than a long life without him. I'm not here that you may have cars and houses and health and family. Dear brethren, those are not the things that consist in life. A man's life does not consist in the things that he possesses. Your wife, your husband, your children are not the essential purpose for the coming of Christ. You can lose them 
I still live. But some, in attempting to hold them, have perished. He's meaning, I've come that I may give them the kind of life that can only be described as life suitable for eternity, fitting for eternity, answering to eternity, coming from eternity, life that's abundant and rich and full, out of the belly of whose a heart will flow rivers of living water. I've come that they might live. It's much more than lengthy existence. It is forever. But I asked my children on the way to church tonight to let we have a little brainstorm. Why do you live forever if you have eternal life? You ever thought about that? Why is it forever? Well, the reason is it's because it's God's life you have. It's not just because God promised it. It's the nature, quality, and essence of the life that's given. Brethren, can you comprehend it? Has it occurred to you yet that you who are, who are dust and flesh and to whom it has been said from dust you came and to dust you'll return, who are daily and increasingly acquainted with your dust and frailty, who continue to see the day of death looming larger and larger on your fleshly horizon, who sometimes dread it and sometimes would welcome it, has it occurred to you yet that the great gift that God has given to those that believe upon his Son is nothing less than his own life. That he has, could we say it, injected you into the stream of eternity. It's not a length of life, it's a quality of life. Yes, it has its length, but you don't measure eternity by length. How can you measure that which has no beginning and has no end? It's timeless. It's that which is not measurable. It's that which is blessed and sweet and glorious because it's God's life. You've been made God's children, not only by adoption, but by the infusion of his life. Christ lives in me, and the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I think I would urge this church to meditate. I would urge you who are not members of this church, you who are strangers to grace and who are not alive in Christ, to meditate on what eternal life is. To know God. That's the essence of it. To know Him intimately, affectionately. But also the quality of it. It's sweet and real and forever and it's righteous and it's holy and it's good and it's clear and it's pure and it's all that God possesses in his holy life. God has given to us as his sons the inheritance of his life. What is union with Christ? How can we be compared as uh, branches to the vine? The imagery of life and growth in which the branches grow out of the vine and have the very same life in them that the vine has in it. And from the vine they get it and will continue to get it. All the imagery of the scriptures regarding the lampstands in Zechariah and the oil that continues to be supplied, the life of God and the light of God flowing continually without cessation. Who among us longs for perpetual existence in this world, in this body? 
One of the things God is doing in teaching us and chastening us by leaving us in this body for a time after our conversion is to prepare our hearts more for heaven. Don't grow too frustrated that God is not taking you right on to heaven. He's going to drive it down deep in your soul that you long for eternal things. You're going to get to taste this world enough until you want to throw it up. And isn't that increasingly our portion? The best we get here just isn't enough. And the worst is almost intolerable. We're surrounded by people of an unclean lip. Well, I tell you, we don't have to live as though we are stuck with that because we've been given eternal life. Now, before I quit, I'm going to have to borrow from one of my points in the next major division, and we'll continue, God willing, in the next time, but I have to jump into the next thing on the recipients of eternal life and extract from it one point so that I can make it clear that this is involved. Eternal life is a gift that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. You don't inherit it by virtue of your birth. You're not going to get it because your mom and dad have it. You can't have it that way, children. You're not going to get it because your church has it. Parking your membership into this church does not give you eternal life. God gives it. It's a gift. And you don't get it by merit. You'll not obtain it by being good. What must I do to inherit eternal life? You can't do anything. It is not ours by right, nor by merit, nor can we ever, with all of our exertions, ever obtain it or reach it or make it happen. You cannot squeeze into your heart eternal life. You cannot thrive and get eternal life. Well, you better do some striving, but the striving will not be where you get it. It will be given. But to what is it given? It is given to faith. He that lives and believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. He that lives and believes in me, though he dies, shall live forevermore. He will never die. He has passed from death into life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the water of life. If any man thirst, let him come to me and drink. I am the bread of life, that I may give my flesh to the world, that the world may have life from me. He that believeth on the Son of God hath the life. He that believeth not hath not the life. I'm simply saying this. If you want eternal life, you must believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. You must turn away from believing on yourself or anything else. You must cease attempting to find a way to God. And you must rest on his way to himself in his Son. You must stop worrying about whether you're going to measure up. You and yourself will never measure up. You must reject all your efforts to get right with God by pleasing Him, by meeting the standard. Cast yourself on Christ. Turn away from yourself and turn to Christ. Look away from all your other support systems and look to Christ. You will not live by finding a good husband or a good wife. The best among them are sinners and will give you enough miserable days just by living with them that you'll wonder why you ever thought that was the secret to your happiness. 
You'll never live by having a bunch of cute little kids running around the house that are perfectly healthy. The healthier they are, the tougher they are. You'll not live because you finally arrive at that place of business in which your income has topped the 70,000 mark or whatever is your goal. Some of you thought, wow, I never even dreamed of that. Well, let me say, some of you are going to get to the 30 and the 35 and the 50 and the 75 before your days are over, probably. You're not going to live by it. You'll find yourself just as much in debt to debt then as you are now if you don't change the way you spend money. You always have spent all you've had. What's to say you won't continue? If you get your little house in the country, you're not going to live by it. Perfectly fine to look to do it, but don't mix it up with your happiness and your everlasting peace. You want to live. You want to live with God and have God's life and have eternal life and think eternally and get freed up from the lusts of this world and from your frustrations in this world and from your bitterness in this world and from your loneliness in this world. Find as your satisfying portion the Lord Jesus and be content with Him. Drink of Him. Eat of Him. Believe upon Him. Wait upon Him. Lean on Him. You that are burdened, lean over on Him. You've got a load on your back. Drop it at Calvary. He'll take it. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall have everlasting life. Whosoever. If you're three years old and understand what I'm saying and know that you're a sinner and know that God loves you as a sinner and gave his son that you might live, look to Jesus and believe upon Jesus. And you shall live with Jesus. Do you believe upon Jesus? Not just that he existed because mom told you or dad told you. But do you believe upon him yourself? When you pray, do you believe you're really talking to God? And God's really listening. When you read your Bible, do you find often that the Bible speaks to you when you can understand its language? Do you look forward to those times alone with God? Do you long for sweeter times in worship? When you are here, and when preaching is good, and when singing is good, does it sweeten your soul? And do you wonder why it took you so long to wish you were here? Do you have... A heart that's alive to God. Do you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you willing to do everything he says in his word for you to do and be happy about it? First of all, to obey your parents every time they say do something. His commandments are not grievous. You're not mad at Jesus because he wants you to obey your mommy and daddy. You're glad he wants you to obey your mommy and daddy. You're glad to please Christ. Now, I trust that some of you grown-ups can get some of the crumbs that fall off at the table of the little ones and translate for yourself what it means for you to claim you know God. But I tell you, everyone that comes to Christ in true faith lives eternally, lives with God, lives with God's kind of life. And once you've tasted eternal life, not only is there no turning back, there's no wanting to turn back.
who among us who have entered the streams of life from heaven would ever trade it, even a part of it, for all that this world could give? Oh, dear brethren, we would all moan and groan within ourselves about our sins, our deadness, our dullness, our dryness, our selfishness, our rebelliousness, our native remaining indwelling sin, how sickly we feel, how much our hearts even this day have been plowed up in preaching, how much our own lack of devotion to Christ's church has been exposed by his word, his servant, and his spirit. And yet none of us would dare leave now who have tasted eternal life. None of us would go back and take the sweetest that this world has to offer. We, with the hymn writer, would say, We turn again from the best bliss this world affords. We turn again unfilled to thee. Do you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ that you have eternal life? Do you not? Then believe on him. Believe on him tonight. Do not leave here without committing your way, your life, your heart, your sins, your needs to Christ. Ask him in prayer. O Lord Jesus Christ, I do not know you, but I want to know you. And I believe what Pastor Allen preached from your word, that all who know you have eternal life. And I believe what you said in your word, that everyone that comes to you, you will not cast out. You promise that whosoever believes on you will have eternal life. Lord, give unto me, not this world, not health, not cars, not jobs, not money, not toys, not friends, not pleasures. Give it all away, but give me eternal life, which nobody can ever take away. Let me know you, O Lord. And I would submit to you believers that actually in your life, it becomes a perpetual prayer to know God. The more you know, the more you don't know. You, the more you know, you don't know. And the more you long to know more. Who has taken in the whole ocean in one gulp? The more you taste, the more you want. Don't be ashamed that every day you wake up and say, Oh Lord, let me know you. Your marriage ought to be like that. It's not so difficult for some of us to want to know our spouse better. To want a sweeter and more intimate communion with our spouse. It's natural for us and we long to do that because there are immediate felt fruits to that. But I tell you, it ought to be the heartbeat of every saved man and woman and child in this place to know God better. May God grant to us and give to us his own knowledge, intimate, personal, sweet, holy, righteous, everlasting communion with God. And may we find out soon, if we've not learned it yet, that there's nothing like that in all the world. And that without that, nothing else is worth anything. May we let our souls be drawn out to eternal things and desire only eternal things. And may all the rest fall into place as it has its service to eternal things. May God grant us hearts that think on heavenly things. And may he give eternal life to those that hear his word. Let us pray. <clears throat> our Father and our God this material is richer than we can speak richer than we can comprehend and certainly these poor lips can explain but your spirit who has given life to millions through the years young and old enlightened and ignorant are certainly able to take what was truly spoken 
and make it owned to the heart of everyone and grant life and give life through the faith of your Son to many in this place tonight. O Lord, our prayer is that you may hear us, that you may come and honor the gospel, and that you may cover over and shadow over all the weak spots of the preaching, and that you may sanctify with the dew of heaven these things, and that you may, even to the children, awaken their hearts. And Lord, if there are those among us who are professing believers, who have been in this church, who are strangers to true knowledge of you, and who, because they don't know you truly, have walked the way they've walked and stay frustrated and are still where they are, we pray, O oh God, that you would free them from the bondage of their efforts to serve you under the letter, and that you would minister to them the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus, and that in their body, in their mortal flesh, they may perfect and live in the mortifying of sin and fulfill the ordinance of the law. O Lord our God, hear our prayer and magnify your Son so that you may be glorified in him as he gives eternal life to his elect who come to him in faith. Give faith in this place tonight. Strengthen it where you find it and supply it where it's lacking. Hear our prayer, O Lord as we look aside and away to you and long to you and depend upon you and cast ourselves on you. O oh God, do not leave us in coldness and death, but spring life in our souls and make us a church that shows increasingly the evidences and the fruit of eternal and spiritual vitality in the Lord Jesus. Answer us speedily, we cry, O oh God, for the sake of your Son. Amen.